Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing amazing conversations like the one we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor and an advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies and, as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI or uh, maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. Now, we learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And of course, the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact. Alex Kantrowitz writes this week on his Substack big technology blog about ethical decisions and value judgments built into generative AI models by its creators. For example, ChatGPT has opinions about topics like rape and torture, and even Dolly 2, the text-to-image generating service from OpenAI, decides, say, what a CEO looks like when asked to create an image from a text prompt. Unlike ethical debates around traditional content moderation, humans aren't manually reviewing the output from generative AI. Kantrowitz writes that AI's intelligence may be artificial, but humans encode its values. The technology may seem like magic, but humans are responsible for the data and algorithms that generate the content. We'll continue this important discussion, starting with today's guest. As always, we'll link to that full article in today's show notes. But now shifting to this week's conversation, we discuss the intersection of technology and society frequently, often in the context of AI ethics. To benefit from AI technology, we must first acknowledge what could go wrong when automated decisions do the wrong thing. AI trained on biased data makes biased decisions. Now, in the past, we've referenced the great 2020 documentary on the topic of algorithmic bias called Coded Bias, directed by Shalini Kantaya. Among other leaders in the field, it features today's guest. Professor Broussard is a data scientist and associate professor at NYU. Her research focuses on AI in investigative reporting and using data analysis for social good. Professor Broussard is the author of Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World, as well as the forthcoming More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech which will be available in a few weeks. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. It's one of the most important topics in our field. And today we get to explore it with someone whose name is on a short list of AI ethics pioneers. You've heard me say repeatedly, coursework in AI ethics should be required for every student graduating with a technical degree. And uh, without further ado, Professor Broussard, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's uh, get started by having you share a little bit more about your background and how you got into this space. Well, Dan, thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, it's really great to be talking with you and your listeners. Uh, I got into this space uh, mostly through my interest in social justice and also technology. Uh, I am a professor at NYU. I teach something called data journalism which is the practice of finding stories and numbers and using numbers to tell stories. And 
I was doing artificial intelligence for investigative reporting, but I would go to parties and say, oh, I do AI for investigative reporting. And people would say like, oh, you mean you'd like build robot reporters? And I would say, no, that sounds cool, but you know, that's not exactly what I do. And they would say, all right, well, you mean like you build a machine that spits out story ideas? I would say, no, that sounds really cool, but that's not what I do. And eventually I realized that even though we talk a lot about artificial intelligence, uh, it wasn't really clear what we were talking about when we talked about artificial intelligence. So I started uh, moving my work toward uh, explanatory reporting about artificial intelligence. Uh, and as I, I got more fluent with explaining the technical side of it, uh, I realized that we also needed to have a conversation about the social side of artificial intelligence. So that's where the idea for my new book, More Than a Glitch, came from. It came from conversations that I had with people, uh, kind of trying to think through uh, the social implications of AI and uh, looking at why every single AI advance is accompanied by some sort of horrific story about race, gender, or ability bias. So what I'm arguing in the book is that we shouldn't think about these things as glitches, as temporary blips. We should think about them as reflections of larger problems in society that are simply manifesting inside AI systems. I've heard you talk about the really scary, almost dystopian example of uh, someone with pale skin putting their hands under a soap dispenser, and they're they're allowed to wash their hands. And uh, someone with darker skin doing the same thing, and uh, the system doesn't allow them to wash their hands. And that is a stark reminder about the the unfairness that's built into some of these societal norms. What has changed since you published the first book that maybe made you feel there's a need to go beyond human unintelligence and focus on the second book? I think that the uh, that this this next book grew out of the kind of most intense conversations I had around the first book. Uh, one of the things that I've been doing uh, is I've been going around and talking to audiences, uh, talking to different communities uh, about. AI in different contexts. And I kept getting the same kinds of questions and people in different industries from education to uh, professional sports, like people were all kind of grappling with the same kinds of social issues. And so I was curious about these things too. And so I kind of pulled them all together into a book. Uh, so I do talk a little bit more in this book about the racist soap dispenser, uh, about the, uh, about the, uh, viral video you just mentioned. Uh, listeners, if you haven't seen the video of the viral, the viral video of the racist soap dispenser, uh, you absolutely should look it up because it's just a really good reminder of why we can't assume that because technology works for you, it will work for everyone, uh, which is a really common mistake that most of us make uh, because we all have unconscious bias 
And we're all trying to become better people every day. We're all trying to overcome our unconscious bias, but there are things that we just don't know about because they're unconscious. And so we need to just be humble and acknowledge that we're all learning and growing. And we also need to have diverse teams of people creating technology so that so that we don't make the same mistakes that have been made in the past. So there's this unbridled enthusiasm for a future that involves AI. And in some positive ways and in some negative ways, chat GPT and just, I mean, man, it's like 90 days ago, nobody had heard of it. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's changing the world. And it's a good thing because in general, uh, certainly innovation is positive and there are a lot of amazing new advances and problems that we'll solve and healthcare and defense. And there's a lot of positive, but I'm also concerned that very, very few people think about what could go wrong. What can people like you and your research and, and, you know, all of us who are passionate about this topic do to at least get the public to take a step back and ask some of these questions. It doesn't feel like it's going to happen on its own. Well, I think that question, that simple question of what could possibly go wrong is a really good starting point. Uh, That is one of the things that I start with as a journalist. Uh, So I do a kind of journalism called algorithmic accountability reporting. Uh, Traditionally, one of the functions of the media has been to hold decision makers accountable in a world that is increasingly governed by algorithms. Uh, That accountability function has to transfer onto algorithms. We have to hold algorithms and their creators accountable. And instead of just looking at every new AI innovation and saying, oh, this is so great, this is going to change the world, we can also say, all right, what are the likely problems with this? What could possibly go wrong? And then we can look for those things. And when you start looking for them, it's pretty easy to find them. So one of the things that's really interesting to me about the current dialogue about Dolly and ChatGPT is that it was a much faster news cycle this time to discover the bias inside these AI models. So people were much faster to realize that ChatGPT could be made to spew hate. Uh, People were much faster to realize that Dali can be used to make uh, images that are not acceptable. And so the uh, the AI hype cycle is still there, but the criticism is also there. It feels like people are looking at it. Uh, some people are looking at it kind of with clearer eyes this time. So I referenced coded bias, and I think that's done a great service to just you know answering that question: what could go wrong? My question is does it go far enough, fast enough? And like I I referenced, you know, that, that uh, interesting article about human values are encoded in these algorithms. Talk us through how can, you know, the work that you're doing related to algorithmic accountability and the work from coded bias, what do we need to do to amplify that message so that it gets out there even faster than like what you referred to as the current news cycle? It's, it's, it's a topic of conversation, but, uh, but how can we accelerate the conversation? Uh, well, I think the first step is reading my new book. I'm just going to put that out there. 
Uh, I think that uh, I'm really pleased with the way that the conversation has evolved overall. Uh, it was the honor of my lifetime to be involved in Coded Bias. And uh, the conversation around the film really hasn't stopped. Uh, the Algorithmic Justice League, which was founded by Joy Bolamwini, who is the subject of the film, uh, is doing some really great work uh, in bringing awareness to uh, issues of algorithmic injustice. Uh, they did a bug bounty project this year uh, that uh, was about uh, offering, so bug bounties are a concept from cybersecurity. And the idea is that you offer a prize, a bounty for anyone who discovers algorithmic bias inside an algorithm. Uh, this was also used really successfully by Ruman Chowdhury's team at uh, at Twitter, the meta team at Twitter, uh, which has unfortunately since been disbanded. Uh, Safia Noble, uh, also featured in Coded Bias, has been doing some amazing work out of uh, C2I2 at UCLA, um, and has partnered with the Archwell Foundation uh, to bring awareness uh, or to spread awareness of algorithmic uh, algorithmic injustice. Uh, Kathy O'Neill, also featured in the film, uh, has an algorithmic auditing company called Orca, uh, and they have done some algorithmic audits of systems. Now, auditing, you're probably familiar with from the world of taxes. And it just means let's go in and look at a thing and find out what could possibly be going wrong. So we can do this with algorithms. We can do algorithmic audits and we can figure out uh, where algorithms are making biased decisions. And then we can change that. So Orca does algorithmic audits. Uh, I actually worked with them a little while uh, this year to make an algorithmic auditing platform, uh, which was a project that was a lot of fun. That is certainly a who's who in this space. And uh, Joy, if you're listening, and I hope you are, join us on the uh, on the podcast. I'd love to introduce our listeners to uh, the Algorithmic Justice League in more detail. And Professor Broussard, thank you for, uh, for bringing that up. So these algorithms are almost intentionally opaque. And I, I, again, I love the term algorithm, algorithmic accountability, but I would argue that some companies that have commercial interests have a vested interest in not making these algorithms explainable. And I think that as a citizen whose important life decisions may be made by an algorithm, I think we're owed an explanation. But how do you think through the kind of ethical conundrum where it's not in the best interest of the algorithm owner to make the algorithm or to hold the algorithm accountable? There is a, uh, there's something going around Washington right now called the blueprint for an AI bill of rights. And the, so something you said just made me think of this because one of the components of the blueprint for the AI bill of rights is the idea that if an algorithm is making a decision on your behalf, you have a right to know that the algorithm is making that decision and you have a right to an explanation of why the algorithm made that decision. And then furthermore, if you don't like the decision, you have the right 
to contest it and have your complaint adjudicated by a human being who is empowered to change the decision. Now, this is uh, this is not good news for all of the companies who are imagining that they can just turn over decision-making to the algorithms and fire all the human beings and thus make more money, right? Because when, when the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights turns into law, uh, it will mean that you can no longer just pretend that the algorithm is doing sufficient customer service and you're no longer going to be able to say, oh, well, the computer made the decision. It wasn't me. And, you know, nothing can be done. Like, of course, something can be done. However, uh, the explainability piece of it, I think, is going to be complicated uh, because explainability depends on a number of factors. And one of the important factors is the computational literacy of everybody involved in the conversation, right? So explaining complex technical topics in plain language is, is kind of the at the core of my work. And it is the hardest thing that I do. Uh, I hope I make it look easy, but it is not actually easy. Uh, because technical topics are really complicated to understand sometimes. Uh, AI is just math, is something that I say often. Uh, and usually when I say this, people kind of breathe a sigh of relief. They're like, oh, wait, like it's just math. Like it's it's really complicated math. It's not something magical. Like I wasn't missing out on, you know, some on understanding that the computer actually became real. Like, no, it's just math. It's really complicated math but it's not easy to understand. And you have to really just sit down and commit to puzzling through it. Once you've done that work, it's really rewarding. I mean, I'm a professor, like I think it's great to uh, to learn something new and I don't shy away from learning things that are hard. Uh, you know, like they say in that other popular podcast, we can do hard things. But AI is hard to understand. And so if you're looking for a quick, easy explanation of what happened, that's actually a little harder to generate than anybody expects. So we're just going to have to muddle through and try a lot of different explanations uh, and see what happens. I love that tenet of the AI Bill of Rights the idea that you'll be able to have decisions that you object to adjudicated by a human. I love that. And that's definitely the right direction. If I'm being cynical, I'd say having this framework be introduced by the federal government is something that big tech will applaud because that basically gives them a free pass for probably five years before any of this will be enforced or operationalized. And we don't have five years. This stuff is too important. Is there a role for private industry or how can we get big tech to self-regulate? Like what, what do we have to do to, to put this on an accelerated timeline? I mean, I wish I had an easy answer. Uh, we have spent three decades getting ourselves into this current mess. Uh, so I don't think we're going to be able to dig ourselves out in any kind of simple manner. 
Like if there were a simple solution, people would have found it by now. So I think that we are actually at the point where we need federal government regulation of big tech because the era of tech companies regulating themselves has actually been going on for a very, very long time. And while we do have some people who, who are being upstanding, we have even more people who are uh, not being upstanding. And it's clear that a patchwork of regulations is not going to be effective. So federal regulation actually fits very well with uh, software development, right? Because the idea behind software development is you want to write it once and run it anywhere. Uh, it is clear that we can't uh, we can't design software that runs exactly the same in every country in the world, right? We need to make local modifications for uh, local laws, but it would be incredibly efficient to have. Uh, federal regulation around big tech in the U.S. because then you could write software against those federal regulations and be reasonably sure that you're in compliance with the law. Another thing we need, though, is we need better education for software developers about the law. Uh, and we need you know, we need a carrot and a stick. We need to educate people about the law, but then we also need there to be punishment when people are uh, are breaking the law using software. So I've used the analogy on this show before. I believe any system that's using algorithms to make automated decisions should get, call it like a hygiene score, kind of like when you go into a restaurant. Uh, you don't really want to eat in a restaurant that has a C hanging in the window, right? You kind of want to eat at the A-grade restaurants. Well, similarly, uh, you only want to rely on decisions made by A-score algorithms. Now, being an expert in the field, having written the book, and you know, being an advocate for algorithmic accountability, and note that you're talking to a technical audience, I, I would love any insights about how does it become more than kind of a pithy kind of vision or you know a pithy saying. How would we actually operationalize the, you know, assigning a, a quote hygiene or an accountability score to an algorithm? So I I really love the idea of scoring algorithms. I I have seen uh, work out there by uh, Data for Black Lives and other policy groups that advocate for nutrition labels for algorithms, uh, and then I've also seen model cards. Uh, model cards were something that were developed by uh, Meg Mitchell and Timnit Gebru when they were at Google um, before the Stochastic Pirates debacle. Timnit Gebru, of course, is now at uh, DAIR. Uh, Meg Mitchell is now at Hugging Face. Uh, and model cards uh, describe a model uh, and uh, describe the data that was used to train a model. So when you understand what data was used to train a model, it makes it easier to see what the flaws are using a model. So for example, when uh, ChatGPT came out, uh, I went and I read the paper about you know, how this thing was made. And they said very clearly, oh, this, uh, this model was trained on the common crawl. Well, common crawl is a data set 
that was created by sending spiders out onto the open web and collecting as many web pages as they could. And they just dumped this into a uh, a data set and it's updated periodically. And that's, you know, that's the common crawl. Well, okay. What is the, like, what's out there on the open web? When are you going to get when you just like hit random IP addresses and download everything you can? Well, you're going to get a lot of porn. You're going to get a lot of toxicity. You know, uh, if you are scraping Reddit, you're going to get a lot of, mm, uh, you're going to get a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of wacky stuff, right? Let's uh, let's be diplomatic about it. So you have to think about what are the ingredients that go into making a model. And the ingredients is kind of why I like the nutrition label idea. Um, but really, whoever comes up with a terrific scoring system, I'm here for it. So here we are having this conversation in January of 2023. We're back here having a version of this in January of 2033. How has the conversation evolved? Oh my gosh. I hope that we don't have to have this conversation in 2033 because I hope that all the problems have been solved. Uh, I hope that by then people have read my book and said, oh, I can see exactly how we need to fix things. And they have made uh, made substantial strides toward uh, making our world more just and then reflecting that justice inside our computational systems. Now, will this actually happen? I don't know. Uh, I am pathologically optimistic. I have to be in order to get up in the morning. Uh, I do not believe that software developers are out there getting up in the morning and saying, hey, I want to write some software to oppress people today. Uh, I think that most software developers are just people doing their best, like all the rest of us. And I really want, I don't know, I want us to move toward a place of justice and peace as opposed to moving toward a place of injustice and algorithmic inequality. So true. Nobody wakes up saying, I want to write evil software today. And right. both you and I have so far referenced the need for better education of the general public, but more importantly, the software developers. As a professor, do you envision a time when, like I, I posed, I've said this before as well, it should be required, a course in AI ethics not just for software developers, but really anyone who's going to be graduating into a world where they influence these uh, algorithmically guided systems. Is that is that notional or could that actually come? That would be fantastic. I know that kids are uh, that kids are completely willing to engage with these issues. Um, I this year I have been a visiting scholar at the Agnes Irwin School, which is a girls' school outside of Philadelphia. Uh, and I recently went down there and talked with uh, the girls in pre-K through grade eight about generative AI, about how it works, and about what are the potential problems and pitfalls. And they got it. They absolutely got it because... They are thinking about, kids are thinking about 
the internet. They're thinking about technology. They're playing games on their iPads, but then they're uh, they're thinking about how the games work. But then they're putting that together with the lessons that they're getting in school and at home about how do we be kind to each other, what's fair and what's not fair. Uh, and so they're they're ready to have these kinds of conversations. So I do hope that K through 12 education uh, engages with issues of algorithmic injustice. Uh, I hope that uh, the kind of core curriculum at every college and university uh, has a component around AI ethics. And for developers, uh, there has been an ethics requirement on the books in uh, computer science education for several decades. It's just that nobody ever bothered to, to make sure that it was being implemented, right? Like it's been part of the recommended core curriculum, but only in the past couple of years have uh, colleges and universities started saying, oh, hey, we really need uh, you know, some kind of comprehensive computational ethics uh, course for our computer science majors. Are those lectures that you referenced published anywhere? The generative AI lectures? Uh, no. They should be um, required Although if somebody listening. wants to, uh, well, if somebody wants to, to work with me to develop a, uh, a you know, pre-K through eight AI ethics curriculum, you know where to find me. I'm on the internet. I'm signing up to help. Fabulous. All right. It'll it's, be a lot uh, of fun. It's, it's our calling. All right. <laughs> Good. One thing that uh, that surprised you when you were researching for the book, either an interview or a study, something that you said, wow, more people need to know about this. I will say that the uh, the most surprising and also the hardest part of the book to write was the chapter about my own breast cancer. So I am fine, by the way, uh, but I did uh, I did have breast cancer, and one of the things that I did uh, after I was uh, after I was better is I took my own mammograms and ran them through an open source AI in order to see if the AI would detect my breast cancer. Uh, and so I did that in order to write about the state of the art in AI-based cancer detection. Because we hear a lot about the promise of AI for medical diagnostics. Uh, and there just there aren't that many AI breast cancer researchers out there who can do a self-quantification experiment, because uh, there just aren't that many of them who are getting mammograms. And self-quantification is something that a lot of us think about. You know, when we uh, when we track our steps or we track our sleep or we track what we're eating or we track our exercise. But I was curious about, okay, well, what you know, what is it like if you go really deep into your own personal biology and look at it computationally? So it was hard to get the AI to accurately read my scans. And I discovered that, oh, I should say that the AI did successfully diagnose me, right? So it, but it did not work the way that I thought. 
So I had a lot of misconceptions about how AI-based cancer diagnostics work. I thought that the AI would work the same way as a doctor. I thought that I would feed in my entire chart and it would look at everything about me and then give it like spit out a diagnosis. And that is not at all how it works. So the way that AI-based cancer diagnosis actually works is you take one image, you feed it in, and you say, computer, uh, analyze this. And it analyzes it, and it draws a red box around the area of concern. That's it. That's all it does. And this is totally different than what a doctor does, right? A doctor looks at the scan and kind of zooms in on an area that they think is kind of suspicious looking. And then they read the rest of the chart and they look at the patient's history and they maybe palpate the mass. If there is a mass, it's a totally different diagnostic method. And so I realized that these, uh, these laboratory conditions, the kind of tests that you hear about where, oh, this AI uh, performed better than radiologists is actually not an apples to apples comparison because the radiologist never just gets a, you know, a totally unlabeled image and is, is asked to identify whether there's cancer or not in this image. Like that just doesn't happen. That's not the radiologist diagnostic method. So I think that what what people can take away from this is is the idea that what you think is happening in AI based medicine is probably not what's actually happening uh, if you're anything like me. So it's really important to dig deeper to understand precisely what is going on and understand exactly how the AI is potentially being used as a diagnostic helper for doctors, but is probably not going to totally replace doctors anytime soon. It should be encouraging for everyone to hear that in the field of, you know, in medicine, things like that, people are out there thinking about how to use AI in the right way and do it in a responsible way. And that, yeah. you know, this is not about the bot apocalypse, far from it. It's about improving the accuracy, reducing the time, improving patient outcomes. And it sounds like that was your experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, like one of the, one of the things that you think about a lot is ways that AI can help people. Uh, and that was something that I thought about a lot as I, uh, as I researched this, uh, this chapter in the book about, uh, AI-based cancer diagnostics, um, because doctors are just, uh, doctors work harder than I realized at updating their knowledge. You know, they have to constantly learn new things and they constantly get tested on this new material that they've learned. Uh, I really just admire the heck out of doctors and also the folks who are doing research on AI-based cancer diagnostics. This is a really, really hard problem. Uh, and so I think we shouldn't expect it to be solved anytime soon. And it's 
just much a much more complicated problem than I originally thought, which is fascinating. I know the time flew by, but uh, we're about out of time. But uh, you're not getting off the hot seat without answering one last question for me. So you're talking to a lot of aspiring uh, AI technologists, and I'm sure if they're listening to this podcast, they care about the ethics behind AI. I'd like you to share with them some of your role models, and you've mentioned some some real um, uh, stalwarts in the field already, but maybe people who you feel like have influenced your career. This book was absolutely influenced by the work of a number of amazing women who I feel really fortunate to call friends. Uh, Joy Bolamwini, Safia Noble, Ruha Benjamin, Kathy O'Neill, and Julia Angwin. All of these women have uh, have done pioneering work in AI, in AI ethics, in algorithmic accountability, uh, in public understanding of science. Uh, and I highly recommend uh, looking at everything that they've written or said. And you can also read my new book, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. Uh, you can read this new book as a love letter to uh, the work of all of these amazing people. This has been such a pleasure. I really feel like uh, we're just getting started and I wish we had more time, but uh, maybe you'll come back some other time and we'll continue the discussion. I would love that. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to be here with you today. Yeah, well, likewise. I want to make sure the audience knows where they can find out more about you and, of course, where they can buy the book when it uh, when it's published. You can find me online at meredithbroussard.com. And More Than a Glitch is going to be published by MIT Press on March 14th, 2023. And it is available at all of your uh, of your favorite retailers. Uh, and if you are listening to this before March 14th, I highly recommend pre-ordering the book. Thank you. Excellent. Well, we're uh, we're certainly all rooting for you, for your work, and of course, for the uh, success of the book. Well, that's a wrap for uh, for this week on AI and the future of work. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin. And of course, we are, uh, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. Mm-hmm.